Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is. This is a podcast and you're listening to it whenever you may be listening to it. Today is going to be quite excellent because we are here with acclaimed fashion designer, Michael Bastian. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Austin. I'm so happy you're here. Well, I'm so happy you're here, too, because everyone's always curious about fashion, and it's a really cutthroat industry where everyone really wants to get into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a path. There's a route. There's a fashion school, and you make your own things, and you sell them on the corners, and, mm-hmm. and then there's how you got here. Mm-hmm. First of all, tell us where you are now. Uh, well, I have a menswear line called Michael Bastion. And this was launched in 2006, correct? 2006, exactly. Yep. Um, and we just recently started a secondary line called Michael Bastion Gray Label, which is a little bit more accessible than the luxury line. So... So you've got two lines right now. The uh, yeah. the uh, what what give give someone an example of what the uh, the the segment between the two lines would be. Uh, you know, you don't have to name a competitor, but maybe uh, something that would be accessible so they can sort of judge the uh, the echelon between the two. Sure. When I when I first started, uh, I was I had been the fashion director of Bergdorf Goodman Men's uh, for five years, and out of that. I decided to start my own line. And when I first came out of the gate, what I knew coming from Bergdorf was the the really high end. And I had friends in Italy who had factories who could help me get off the ground. So what I started with was this idea of classic American menswear, but done at a really great level. So that great level comes with kind of a great expense. So it, it was um, pretty expensive, and it was available at Burger of Goodman, Barney's, uh, Mr. Porter, um, basically the stores who had the customers who would understand it and were prepared to pay the money for it. And I did that for 10 years, and recently we started the secondary line called Michael Bastion Gray Label with the whole idea that this would be much more accessible, much more available to many more people. So we're talking like Nordstrom, um, stores like that, that, that just b- broader distribution. Understood. And I think, I think that grounds us sort of where we're coming from right now. But let's go talk about that Bergdorf Goodman fashion, men's fashion di- director. Yeah. Uh, now, to what me... A, what a strange job, right? Well, to was, me, <laughs> I do not know what that job would mean. What, what does that mean? Does that mean you're sort of curating the collections that are featured per season? I mean, that's uh, sort of what I envision it like. Yeah, that's that's definitely part of it, but it was a little more hands-on than that. When, when we would start with a season, we would all get in a room, all the all the men's merchants, and we would say, all right, what do we want the store to stand for this season? And what are we missing in our own wardrobes? What, what are we looking for ourselves that we don't, we can't find? And we would we would make this mood board. We would make this list, uh, like kind of a shopping list. And then we would take off and go to all the runway shows. We'd go to Pitti Womo, which is kind of the big men's trade show in Italy. Um, we go to London, Paris, Milan, and cover all the American markets. And we would kind of tick off that list, you know, like you would a shopping list. And you're in your own little playground. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for the you know. For Burger of Goodman, which was amazing because there was never any worry about, you know, well, is it, is it too expensive? It was really just a quest to find the best stuff in the world. Right. And you're doing what you love and what you know. And therefore, I mean, when you do what you love, mm-hmm. it resonates with others. Mm-hmm. 
or it doesn't. But it sounds like, you know, this is this collection that I've assembled is what I love. Yes. And therefore, I really hope that this resonates with everyone per season. Yes. And that, okay, you bring up a good point because uh, in. With department stores, with designers, sometimes you're thinking about this mystery customer, this dream customer, and I, I always feel that's that's kind of not not the right way to start. I always feel like you should start with what do I want myself, and then it at least is grounded with something real. And if you want, say, let, we're assuming we're talking about people who kind of know the industry, have a good taste level. What what do what do I want myself? If you are dying for that thing, for sure there's a million other guys looking for the same thing and having the same frustration and not being able to find it as you are. And that that was always our attitude when we went into the market trying to find stuff. So um, the, the thing that led me to doing my job as a designer was on this magic list, there was a lot of stuff we couldn't find, and they were always kind of the perfect basic things. So, uh, slimmer dress shirts, or the perfect cashmere sweater that wasn't too baggy, right? And had the right V-neck depth, which which it sounds minor, but is a crazy important thing. Oh yeah, on your we, V-neck, we don't want to go deep V. We don't want to go deep V. Well, you don't want to go too high either. Okay, you know? yeah. Then, so then, then it's not even a V. <laughs> yeah, so it's a U. Then it's just a sag. It's just a saggy. <laughs> Uh, saggy crew neck. Right. So there were, the, there were a lot of these tiny little details. And, you know, I know these are not things that m- a lot of guys obsess about, but if it is important to you, it's very important to you. So there were enough guys looking for that kind of thing. And we would do those things in the private label market, meaning we would go to these factories that we loved in mainly Italy and have them produce them for the store under the Burger of Goodman label. And that basically was my job. I was the one spearheading that part of the merchandising for the store. So after doing that for a good five years, um, which is really 10 seasons or more, uh, I was ready to do something else. And that's when I decided to do my own line. So it's like, uh, I don't know, part of the analogy, but what came into my head was you've been making mixtapes the whole time. Uh Uh-huh. And people are following your mixtapes and loving the mixtapes you put out. You know what? Now it's time to make my own album with my own original music. Right. Sort of something like that? A little bit like that. Well, I uh, uh, honestly, the real story is I thought, all right, I'm going to keep my job. And I'm going to start a little line of chinos because I was so frustrated that I couldn't find like a chino with a low rise and a skinny leg. And, and you know, we're talking 2005 and now you can find those anywhere. But at the time, you couldn't find them that, that easily. And uh, I thought, all right, I can wrap my arms around this. Jumping into the world of being a designer, there's so many potholes and I've been warned a zillion times. It's not an easy job. So I'm just going to start this little little pants line and keep my job. And I went to my boss and said, okay, I got this great idea. And he said, all right, well, you know, it's not that it's not a great idea, but you've figured out a way to have no business because you work for Bergdorf Goodman, who is owned by Neiman Marcus. So we can't buy anything from an employee. And as a fashion director at Bergdorf, you sure as hell can't sell to Barney's or Saks. So basically you decided to start a business Stay- that has... Stay, stay, no. or, stay or walk. Yeah. So he's like, if you're going to do it, you got to do it. You just got to jump. And now, was that, that wasn't so. an ultimatum. That was supportive. Oh, my gosh. No, he was my buddy at the time. Yeah. And he really helped me line up that jump. So it, it was amazing. So that's uh, So you've got... So you do not go to fashion school. No, didn't go to fashion school. I went to business school. I thought I would be in advertising. Um, And the whole falling into menswear, falling into fashion really was uh, kind of a typical story for New York kids that you just kind of bump from one career to the other. Uh, I spent my 20s just going out a lot and making friends. And whenever I was a little tired of a job, I would just say, does anyone know anything? And someone always knew of something. And one thing led to the next thing. And I went through this just random string of jobs that somehow led me to Sotheby's that led to Tiffany, that led to Ralph Lauren, that led to Bird of Goodman, and 
and that led to being a menswear designer. And it, it just, if I were to try to advise someone on how to recreate that path, there's no way to do it. <laughs> it, it just yeah. really was this. All I can advise them is go out, be with your friends, like like enjoy your twenties. You're not you're not sure where you're going to land. No, yeah. but you know if you vaguely know what you're good at. Well, I think my whole twenties were trying to figure out what I was good at. Right, and my whole thirties were spent trying to figure out what I was good at in a relationship. And my, it was only in my forties that I kind of buckled down and thought about my career. Right. So it. I, I'm actually the worst person to give advice to college students because, particularly fashion school students, because yeah. I I did not take that traditional path. So right, right, but you did do something that most people do not have the uh, the cojones to do, which is you said. I'm pulling the full ripcord right here yeah. because it sounds like, you know, 10 seasons at Bergdorf, yeah. this is a stable, solid job. Oh, it was amazing. You're well-liked and everything. So taking that leap of faith, what's what's the moment where where you go, I believe in this so much that I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling the pin, I'm rolling the grenade under the door, and I'm walking out. <laughs> well, it... I weirdly had no fear. It was only in retrospect that I looked back at, at what I did, which was kind of so foolhardy. And I, I was just, I, that was the exact word that came to my head. You know, I had a great job, I had a, a nice, you know, paycheck, and I didn't have to worry about anything. And I just did this thing. And I remember uh, telling my parents, and my mom started crying. And I said, what are you crying about? And, and part of it was losing her discount at Bergdorf. But the other <laughs> <laughs> but the other part was, when are you going to stop this? When are you just going to settle into a job? We're tired of worrying about you. And I never, since I graduated college, I never took a penny from my parents. I just somehow bumped along. But they were always waiting for me to, I think, come around the bend and do that advertising job that I set out to do or something, or some weird marketing job. I don't know. I so. I, I mean, I totally empathize because, you know, I, I did. I fell into corporate events. Fell into it. Really? Yeah, because it was just... Uh, what do you even go to school for to, to even... Uh, well, apparently uh, two majors in history and one in classical music. <laughs> uh, if you guys, by the way, hear some uh, laughter in the background, we are surrounded by some friends and loved ones right. here in Michael's very comfortable home well, in the you. West Village. Uh, well, thank you for, so much for having us here. This place pleasure. is This place is a visual delight. Um, <laughs> it's... It's eclectic. It's awesome. It's super cool. You're going to see the photos on Instagram. Um, but yeah, no, you sort of fall in. You sort of fall into things. Right. And Austin is. But you got to fall that, out of them. Well, here here's my question for you. So you had a similar experience. Like, is it, how much of this is luck? How much of this is destiny? How much? I I I, I try to untangle this. Oh all the yeah. Time. I mean, I it was sort of. I only got my really my real first job from a friend who knew a guy who I met at a party. Right. And then they're like, oh, you seem like you'd be the perfect fit for this job. And sure enough, I got that job. And then 10 years later, I'm still doing events. And I'm like, I spent 21 to 31 at one job. No one can say that anymore. And why Why did... And then one day it was like, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Why did I do that? And then I thought I found my thing because I got an advertising job. So I thought I found it. Mm -hmm. And then that disappeared too. Mm -hmm. And then I really found it, which was uh, bartending. Really? Uh, yeah. And I realized okay. I got to be, I don't have linear schedules. Uh -huh. I like hanging out with people. Uh -huh. I like conversing. I don't really, you know, I don't care for material stuff that much. So uh -huh. like I got cash in pocket. I could go out drink. I could go have dinner and I could travel when I want to. This seems pretty good. Right? But and how do you monetize that skill set? Because we all have to pay our rent. Exactly. So the next the next logical step would be you stay in the bar business and then you buy equity into a bar and then you strike out on your own and you own your own bar, right? Mm -hmm. In my case, you just sort of took a detour onto a game show and won half a million dollars. Right. And then ended and up with a podcast, which, by the way, this, <laughs> again, I sort of fell into this and this is the best career on earth. Right. Because I'm here talking with all these interesting people around the globe. Um, wow. Actually, the so, two of us... 
are terrible at advice. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because our our career path involved a miracle or two we didn't when go, you least expected it. Right. We didn't go pre-med no. and then go to med school, med school, then do our residency and then work at, you know, Cornell Weill. No, I, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to give so much hope to all the slackers of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just go out and do that thing and it works out. No, honestly, <laughs> when I, when I'm giving these advice, advice to uh, fashion students or college students, but my advice is really look at your 20s as your time to kind of go crazy, make every mistake, figure out what you're good at. Yeah. Please take the time to use your 30s to investigate what you need in a relationship, a personal relationship, what you're good at, what you're not good at, you know, what you need. And then really with your 40s, and hopefully you're, you're, you're holding down a job this whole time, but yeah. by, by the time you're in your 40s, you should kind of know what you like. <clears throat> where you want to go with your career and use those 40s times to really buckle down on that and to really get some traction. Um, and other than that, I don't know what else to say. Right. I don't, I don't know what college advice to give. I went to a great school. I love them. They don't know what to do with me as a, as a fashion designer. <laughs> I came out of a business school. Right. Because there's not many of them. But um, it's, I don't know. What Have you ever taken the Briggs-Myers personality test? Yeah. What are you? Are uh, you- so when I was younger, I was... I-N-T-P. You are not introverted. No. When I was younger, I was. Now I'm an ENTP, I okay. think. I, I don't. I haven't taken it in a long time, but I remember there was a critical point in time where I changed from an I to an E. Okay. Uh, well, maybe you're somewhere in the middle of the spectrum because yeah. I, I always considered I was a very strong I, very strongly yeah. introverted, and I needed to pull away to get my batteries charged and blah blah blah. But somewhere along the line, you do these jobs, and I think I's can turn into E's based on their environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to be. You have to be on in your in your line of work you have to be out there you're you are a showman well and if you're with a receptive audience or yeah. friendly people or people you connect with you can come out of your shell yeah you're not so much an eye anymore but i i don't know i always go back to briggs myers and i don't know why but i feel like there's some some magic combination in there but well so with that's the, a sidetrack no that's a great sidetrack because with your personality evolving and with this experimentation phase and don't tell me too much about it mm-hmm. but with this experimentation <laughs> phase of your 20s how how does that inform your your current self your current decisions and also where did how did that inform your your personal style that clearly resonates with so many i'm so glad you're asking me these questions because no one asks these i don't specific questions. I like don't care about clothes. Good. I just care, That's great. I just then care about. I care about how the person got to the clothes. You in know. A, in a lot of ways, I don't care about clothes either. I oh, care really? About, no, I care about how guys feel about themselves. Right. I you like know, buying. When this, you wake up in the morning. Yeah. You should walk out of your apartment feeling really good about yourself. Yeah. That's really all I care about. And how how my weird early twists and turns led to that spot. Um. You know, well, the first job I had was in retail at the store called ANS that I was almost fired from because I was shitty at the math. And then I went to a, <laughs> and then I went to a, a magazine called Avenue, um, hmm. which was my first uh, fashion magazine. Do you remember that? Like in the I 80s? remember Avenue. Like, yeah. Okay, I was there like at the height of. I think like, it died the early late nineties, right? Yeah. Maybe well, it even made it to the mid two thousand. I was there at the heyday. I was yeah. there like in the late. 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So um, Pat Buckley and all all of that. That that's when I was there, and then from that job I went to Sotheby's. Okay. Now and that was a weird jump because I was in fashion slightly. I was an assistant, but um, I go to Sotheby's as a copywriter uh, mm-hmm. in, in the real estate division, and what you what people don't realize about Sotheby's is it's really you're talking about the luxury market. You're talking about Picasso. So you're right. talking about the height of the luxury market yes. and dealing with these customers. And um, one of the ways that I made a little extra money was I would sit in the real estate booth in the auction house on the weekends when there were big auctions and just kind of observe these people and, and talk with these people. And, you know, when you're from a 
tiny town in upstate. Like I was from, there might be this weird. Where upstate? Uh, Lyons, New York. Where between, is between Rochester and Syracuse. Oh, like okay. Right on the thruway. Yep. It's gorgeous up there. And um, so here I am, you know, sitting in this booth watching. I remember uh, Kenneth J. Lane and Mary McFadden were there one time, and. Um, I was doing something. I turn around and they're right in my face, and just uh, started talking with them. And and you just figure out that the the key to the luxury market is is understanding the customer and being able to talk to them like a normal person. And uh, it, it, it sounds weird, but they are their own weird species. And just dealing with that customer makes you a little more relaxed. And after nine years at Sotheby's, I was there for a good long time. It was mm-hmm. basically all my 20s. And um, finally, and that that was a weird job because I wanted to be a little more creative, but I wasn't in an expert department. I was in a subset of a subset. I was in the real estate division in the copy department. So I, I weirdly had no skill, you know, that could apply to other jobs. It, it was you were literally just typing out the rote description of each property. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember my this, big this three thousand square foot gem yeah. features like how many times did you use the word gem? Uh, no, no, no. It's funny you should say that because I was like twenty four years old and I was like a little dictator about saying there's no triple mint. This is Sotheby's. We yeah, can't yeah. say triple mint. Yeah, That's yeah, all. This yeah. is not. We're not talking about chewing gum. We, we, we don't. We don't need to say that because it's implied, right? Like so. Yeah, I got into a lot of fights with a lot of. <laughs> So, I, uh, so somehow through the grace of God, like got a job through a friend who uh, had a friend who was at Tiffany as the creative director, Robert Rufino, and he needed kind of an assistant to help out with the tabletop floor at Tiffany. And you may remember this, the, the third floor at Tiffany used to be the home floor, the tabletop. And I've, they would have... I've never made it past the front door because no. I, get, I get scared. Okay. It is not my domain. I've walked in once uh, and immediately I see all these bespoke, bow-tied gentlemen. Security and, guards. And the security <laughs> guards and, and just, you know, these ladies leaning over the counters and right. these and these guys with cufflinks, and I'm like, nope, uh, not my crowd. No, you know what? I'm going to go down the street to Trump Tower. That's my crowd. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you got to understand, I, I had the same anxieties about all of these great places I worked at, and um, there, everyone's people are people. And and I, I, I know, but it's intimidating. Like, I did go to the second floor on, where was men's on Bergdorf? Third floor, right? Men, well, the men's oh, the store men's is its own, own store. store. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I think Where's the suits? Is that third floor? Second Two. floor. Second floor. I went up there once because I needed a suit, and yeah. I'm just like walking by. I'm like, let's go see. And I walk in. I'm like, they're like, hello, how are you? I'm like, I do not belong here. Uh, Automatically, I do not belong here. You know, it's funny. Some people would actually say that at Burger like, I'm, I'm really intimidated. Yeah. And what you got to Oh, no, no, no. Is, don't get me wrong. At that point in time, I did not belong there. <laughs> no, everybody. Now, now I do. <laughs> everybody, everybody no, belongs there. No, now I there. still don't. <laughs> everybody, everybody belongs there because I was so intimidated when I first moved to New York and I, I almost would not walk into the Ralph Lauren store on Madison just because everyone is the, so the, the estate one, the, 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 the villa one, yeah, yeah on the, 79, 79th, right? Yeah, or 72nd. 72nd, 72nd. And, uh, and then I end up working there. It's, a, it's just like, t- talk about overcoming your fears. Like, you know, Tiffany was was one hurdle. Well, yeah. Bergdorf, I, I was realizing the people who work there are the sweetest people in the world. I mean, I guess. I don't know. It's a, if I have any lesson to, to, to tell, it's, you know. No, no. You don't, know what? Don't be intimidated. You know what? You're, you're right. And I didn't, I didn't reflect on myself because I worked at Rockefeller Founded Asia Society on Park Avenue. Oh, my God. That, and that's gorgeous. I and know. that can be intimidating. But it, it, it wasn't to me because I, when I went in, it was a construction site because it was a new building. And I didn't, I didn't understand that there was this, like, cultural gravitas instilled uh-huh. in it. And everyone's like, oh, you work at Asia Society. I'm like, <laughs> what, that place? <laughs> mm. um, no, you're right. I didn't, I didn't actually reflect reflect on myself. It, yeah, if you're so, in if you're inside, well, it's not even in- if you're not inside, I just think you know that that 
that kind of intrinsic fear of these fancy places. Right. Sometimes the people who work there are the sweetest. I, I usually the people who work there are the sweetest. Right. I don't, I don't know why, but I don't know. Maybe you're just maybe just when you go in there and it's the sweetest person on earth, and they're like, "Can I help you?" You see it as like you're projecting. You're projecting, yeah. or you, you're there. There, no, I have no money in my pocket. Yeah, but like, no, because eventually everyone's going to have money in their pocket yeah. at some point if they're lucky. And you know, sometimes the people with the most money walk in looking like homeless people. Right, that, that would happen all the time at Bergdorf. You just can't prejudge anyone. Um, well, so. okay, so let's talk about pre. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Be judging then in, 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 if I want to start going down, you know, I want to buy this really nice piece of menswear. Uh This is, this is intimidating to someone too. I want to buy a Michael Bastian piece. Yeah. I want to save up for a really nice one, but it costs X amount. Right. This is super daunting. How do you how do you how do you speak to the customer who's not quite aspirational, uh-huh. but not quite you know you know you've got your customers who will buy right. what you want, but what about the people who are like a little intimidated by the right. the, the the thought of am I going to spend this much well, on a turtleneck or something along those lines? Let me tell you something. Those are my favorite customers because I was that guy. Mm-hmm. I had no money. I come to New York, but I knew what I wanted and I knew what I liked and I would hunt down these pieces and I would save and save and save and I would become friends with the salespeople and I wait till it was on a third markdown and they would pull it out of back room because they hung on to it for me and I would eventually get it at 80% off just because I hunted it and saved it and finally got it and loved it and wore the hell out of it. And I always said, if I start my own line, I am never going to look down on that customer, right? that sale customer. Like they're my favorite because I was that guy. Because they waited to track you down. Track it down, hunted it, found it knew their size, waited till it was marked down, and everything is marked down now. And now, actually, it's so easy. You just Google search, and you can find everything right anywhere. And now you can find things on the secondary market, on like the Real Real or eBay. Um, so it's a little easier to get your hands on those things that you really covet. But um, in a weird way, I miss those days when you really had to hunt because it, it meant a little more. Now, now I feel like you wake up and you think, "Oh, I need this or that," and by the end of the day, you could have it ordered at the price you wanted. It, yeah. there, there's not that that kind of buildup, that weird desire of how am I going to find it? How am I going to afford it? But you know? there's also since the market is so much more bifurcated and and so variegated with so many so much competition. Mm-hmm. Conversely, there's also the thrill of discovery, finding something that you mm-hmm. didn't know before that you were you didn't even know you were looking for it too. Mm-hmm. While mm-hmm. you're just either trolling through the racks mm-hmm. or trolling through online, mm-hmm. and you go, "Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. I've never heard of him. What? Let me find more about him." Like because I mean that's how I we discover like music these days. Yeah, you flip through YouTube. And you see a trending video, you go, I'm going to listen. Whoa, mm-hmm. who is this? Mm-hmm. And then you wanted to do d- deeper. So, I mean, I guess it goes both ways. You miss, you miss the thrill of the hunt. Right. Well, but you whole, get the thrill of the discovery. When, when we're talking about fashion, that whole old school world of the hunt where you, 
you know, now you can see a runway show immediately. It happens, and it's usually live stream. Yeah. And you can see it on Twitter. You can see it on Instagram. In the old days, you had to wait for Elsa Clench to show you the video if you were lucky. Or, and you had to wait for the newspapers to give the review. And then you had to wait even longer for the magazines to shoot it. Like, the, the customer knows exactly what's coming down the runway pretty much simultaneously when it comes on the runway. And they make up their opinion immediately. And and this is, as a designer, it's strange because I would do a runway show and I'm in the back dressing these models, shoving them out, and I would have no idea what the reaction was. I would have to come home afterwards and look at my Twitter and go back and see what the live reaction was to what was happening to know how the, the show was received. Right. And that's how immediate it is right now. So is it better? I guess so in a lot of different ways. Is it worse? I don't know. It's it's just different. And it's the new reality. And so designers have to accept that. Does your... Does your personal style uh-huh. differ from or inform the Michael Bastion style? My personal style is the Ma- Michael Bastion style. You dress, you dress, you dress what you want to wear. Exactly, yeah. I wear what I make. And now that the business is a little bigger, and I don't, I'm not necessarily sketching and making every single piece of it. Right. I still want to wear. I still want to take that one home at the end of the day. Yes. That because you you get the sense from uh, other designers. I I don't know enough about them, but, but I know enough big names to be like, yeah, no way in hell did they pen that themselves, <laughs> and no way in hell that that one sneaked through the cracks. Well, okay, here's here's one thing. So, who is there? Oh, dirty little inside. No, no, oh, no, no. It's on. just like there's a couple different kinds of designers. Yeah. So there's ones that are more concerned with. Creating something that you've never seen before in your life. More conceptual designers. Okay, more, okay. more designers that think of themselves as an artiste. Um, I used to say, there are designers who think of themselves with a big D. And then I realized I'm, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that. Because then I would be like, and I'm more of a designer with a little D. And I don't wanna, and that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I started saying it's more like conceptual. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> the difference uh, is a big a big C, a big C. Yeah, no. That's <laughs> yeah, now, so, now we've offended the women. <laughs> exactly. So there's two different kinds of designers. Either you're trying to give people something they've never seen before, or you're trying to give them something. You're trying to give them a better version of something that they already know and love. Okay. So and. I would argue that it's harder to be the kind of designer I am, which is, all right, you already own a million blue polo shirts. Yeah. What, what, what do I have to do to get you to buy a new one? How do I need to twist that thing so you go to the store or see it online and say, I, I really want to is try a, that? This is a new twist on the old classic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's harder to remake something that everyone knows and loves than to come up with something you've never seen. It's the old, like, three-arm jacket. Who, who the fuck needs a three-arm yeah. jacket? So. so there's three things out there that I can, uh, I, wait, wait, was it uh, fonts? Oh, I can look at a font uh-huh. and know, and I can envision a font in my head, but I cannot for the life of me describe what I want that font to look like. I'd be like, mm-hmm. I want it to be squat, but mm-hmm. not short, mm-hmm. but fat, but not thin. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, and a designer will be like, look at this font. No, that's not it. Look at this font. No, that's not it. It's so funny you're saying that because fonts are the hardest thing to communicate. To disc- they are so hard to communicate. And and you get so persnickety about them because you're like, mm. like I, I've been trying mm-hmm. to, I've been trying to font, get a font for my production company. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, that's not mm-hmm. it. And he goes, he goes, well, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know, but that's not it. Right. Uh, so I tried to draw it out and I can't draw really well. And he's right. like, what about this one? But the thing, the things that you see is like, I, I'm a big thrift shopper. Me too. Um, so I go to, I go to this Goodwill on 88th and second Avenue and I just buy 12, 15 nearly identical shirts at the same time. I take them home nine to 11 of them fit. Mm hmm. 
five to six of them I actually like in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm turn I'm I'm buying fifteen at a time. I'm pretty much taking ten back at a time until I refine it mm-hmm. down to the ones mm-hmm. I like. And I found this one pale blue shirt with polka dots, mm-hmm. with white polka dots, and I'm like, I'm not a polka dot person. And I put that shirt on. I'm like. I'm Maybe a polka I'm a, dot exactly, shirt person. Yeah, I have no. like tiny little dots, like that big, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the size of a, uh, I don't know, what's that the size of? A size, smaller than a dime. Okay. And, uh, and I go, I'm not a polka dot person. I put it on and I go, this is the thing I never knew I was looking for. Right? The cut of this shirt, again, it's just a thrift shop shirt, but the cut of this shirt, the pattern of it, the slimness of it, and the pa- and like just every I'm like this is the shirt I never knew I wanted. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you make that shirt that no one ever knew that they wanted? Yeah. The the whole like this is what is has been missing in my life. But how do you find that? How do you define that? If I can't even I can't even vociferate mm-hmm. how to describe why this shirt is the perfect <laughs> shirt. I can't say is it the placket on the front? Is it the pattern? Is it the cut? Does it just fit well? How? Okay, I'll give you an example. Yeah, please. I'll give you an example. It's it's when you're when you're doing this job, when you're a designer, you're thinking and living and breathing this all the time. When you're walking around, when you're getting ready in the morning, when you're on vacation. And there was a time a little while ago, maybe 4 or 5 years ago, that all right, here we are. It's October. It's hot as fuck in New York. It's still humid. Yeah. The AC has not been turned off nope. since April. The hum you hear is the air conditioning <laughs> in in early uh, October, October in, in New York City. And I was thinking... And by the I, way, we, we, we looked at each other. We're like, AC off for good audio? I'm like, no. Uh, <laughs> they can deal with the buzz. I'll fix it in post. They'll understand. <laughs> because this is something... Everyone's going through this at the same time where it's never cold and living in New York um Fall was, is the best. Well, I was well. When is fall ever coming? Like fall comes <laughs> at, at maybe Thanksgiving if you're lucky, and, and then you go straight to slush season. Well, you don't even need a coat till really around Christmas time, and then maybe through March. And so I, I was saying, instead of investing in all this outerwear, maybe what I need is a heavier sport coat that I can just wear with a scarf. Yeah, and gloves and, yeah. And it, it was a personal thing, and then I started designing heavier sport codes because sport codes are a weird thing if you're in an office it's always hot in an office no one wanted like a heavy tweedy sport coat but if you say okay take it off when you're in the office but this is also your outerwear yeah and it's like almost this weird two for one yeah when i started explaining that guys were like you're right but that I is don't that- need another top coat i need a slightly heavier sport coat and maybe a down vest if it gets really cold. You know, and then suddenly the accessories got more important. And suddenly every guy understood this because I, they're living the same weird, in the same weird world we're all living in, where it's hotter than it ever was. Oh, I'm so excited because I'm no sartorial expert, uh, but I think I have, like, an individual style, which is the same checkered shirts over and over again. Yeah. But I, for years, literally, like, 15 years, I've been doing... The heavy sport coat as my three and a half season coat. Right. And you throw the scarf on, you throw the gloves on. Right. And then I'll throw I'll throw a track jacket underneath it when it gets Exactly. Yeah. A, a crazy hat. And it, it just it opened up a lot of doors and guys just weren't used to thinking about that. And, and then now, you're riding your bike. I ride my bike everywhere. Oh. So now I'm not getting super hot because I could unbutton the top button, unbutton the sport coat sort of unzip the track jacket mm-hmm. and then once I get a little cold after I'm done riding the bike, button, zip, walk, scarf. You know, I gotta explain something. That sympathetic, oh, I just gave you said you <laughs> rode the bike. Okay, my biggest style hero ever is JFK Jr. Uh-huh. And he, I don't think he gets enough credit for how much style he had. But you would always see those pictures of him on the bike with kind of half of a suit, but a, and then mm-hmm. maybe a weird chino, and then maybe a weird vest over it, and a knit hat, and a scarf, and a rubber band around his leg to not get caught in the bike chain. And I, I, I feel like so much of his g- weird, quirky, great personal style was because he was always on his bike or doing something or rollerblading to work or... Um, yeah, and it was kind of purpose yeah, driven. It, it is functional. Like I wear the mm-hmm. sport coat because uh changing jackets too much and I'm always on my bike, so having pockets is 
integral. So I got, you know, pockets mm-hmm. for inside, pockets on outside. You know, the gloves go in the pocket, the gloves come out of the pocket rather than unzipping and zipping. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, I don't think I've ever told anyone this. Mm-hmm. I was on Fifth Avenue on my bike riding to work at my ad agency. So I was wearing, you know, the jeans, the blazer. I'd usually have like, you know, a thrift shop tie on, a thrift shop shirt on, mm-hmm. ties a little unknotted. And I'd be wearing like a tweed coat and I'm riding down Fifth Avenue and right next to me on another bicycle is Bill Cunningham. Oh, I was just going to bring him up. Because whenever you're talking about bikes and stuff. And he's snapping photos left and right. Oh. And I'm trying to, like, I I am I am not a vain person, but God damn would I want to be on that Sunday Styles right. page, right? right? So I'm like, uh. sort of like right next to him. And he's facing the other way. He's actually facing towards uh, Donald Trump Tower. Um, <laughs> well, he, he lived, he planted himself on that corner of Bergdorf. Oh, is that where he was? He was all. Oh, of there course, all day long. Of course, that's why it was there. So I'm like, I'm on my bike right next to him. I'm like, please have street styles be bike wear. Please have street. <laughs> and he doesn't look at me. I'm like peacocking and shit like that. And I'm like, I'm like, he. Of course, he didn't do that because, like, when we worked at Asia Society, he'd come in every morning like, Bill, 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 and he'd be like, "I'm not talking to you because you're yelling at me." <laughs> uh, that that was one of my uh, that was my sole run in with New York City fashion, where I wow. I hoped that he took a photo of me on my bike. He may he may have it might come out later. Oh, there might be another documentary, right? Right. I don't know. I worked with that guy. <laughs> that we way- did we did a mini tribute to Bill in a show one time, um, spring. 14. It was our French guy's show that we did in the Pierre Hotel. We had a guy dressed up like Bill Cunningham. In the, and, in the painter smock, right? In the painter yeah. smock. Oh, well, you did your homework. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone really got the joke, even though we had a camera around his neck and everything. But um, yeah, I, I miss his presence. Yeah, there's uh, for those of you non-New Yorkers, Bill Cunningham was for decades a New York icon. He's the fashion, the fashion photographer for the New York Times and the social photographer for the New York Times. And he just sort of curated his own weekly uh, weekly montage of New York street style. He'd, he'd find a trend, he'd pick it out, and he'd just go down it. Tights, or neons, right. or tweeds, or funny hats, or whatever. Hats. And he'd just catalog them, and one of the one of the New Yorkiest things that could possibly happen to you was to be snapped by Bill Cunningham, yeah. because you would frame that and share that with your friends uh, forever. Yeah. Uh, and there's a fantastic documentary on him, and I cannot remember the name of it. But just, and a book, he his a book of that he wrote himself. It's a posthumous book. Really, I just, didn't know about that. Just came out. Yeah, I had no idea about that. I was, his, his story is fascinating. He also, I don't, he came from New England and then became a hat maker. Yeah, yeah, the documentary went into that. Mm-hmm. And he, he cohabitated with a woman, but his sexuality was never really transmitted. Right. Like, no one, this guy is just an enigma. Yeah. Uh, and just such a, and he just lived in this tiny apartment on the 57th Street, just surrounded by his like photo. Like above Carnegie Hall like a, or something? I think it was like in the Carnegie Hall the building. Carnegie, like with an old bike. And, 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 and just tens of thousands of photographs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they like, mm-hmm. do you want to move? And he's like, uh, if you do, no. move me into a smaller place. And then mm-hmm. something like that happened. Mm-hmm. What an enigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we deviated uh, wildly. But I think we deviated on a really good well, section because it's very New Yorky, yeah, and he's Wor- and worth if you don't know who we're talking about, look him up, Bill Cunningham. Yeah, and also the king of minimalist style, you know, right? Same uh, jacket every day, a for- French worker's jacket in this weird indigo blue. Yeah, French painter's coat or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about coats. We talked about the blazer, the multi, the multi, multi, multi blazer. We'll call mm-hmm. it. Uh, but what? Regardless of individual style, you know, some people are going to be out there. Some people are going to be not out there. Some people are going to be more in the Michael Bastian way. Some mm-hmm. people are going to be more flamboyant. Mm-hmm. But regardless of your individual style, if you're a modern American male, mm-hmm. what are the three things that you need in your wardrobe? Uh, I thought you were going to say, what are the three things you need to do to have style, which is different from what you need to do to... Oh, have, well, which one would you your... rather talk about? I... I don't know. I I really think it's more important to walk into a room and and smile. 
to engage with people, to be friendly. I, so the style is almost secondary to engaging with people on a one-on-one way. You know, style will definitely support you and make you a little bit more memorable, but you, you always want people to kind of come out of an interaction with you as like, oh, I remember the person. I don't, I don't necessarily remember every single piece he had on. I remember right. it looked good, but, you know, you just, you want to walk away you know, with with people having a, a good, friendly, sweet impression of you. I, that's, you also that's where my head's at these days. It's funny. I'm, I told you I'm very anti-clothes these days right. in a good way. So attitude makes the clothes. Yeah. Friendliness makes the clothes. Right. I think this is the American gift. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in Italy, and Italy is a very intimidating place when it comes to style, particularly with the men. They, they, men in the Italian culture, are they grow up as the king in their family, yeah. and everyone takes care of them, and they can do whatever they want, and... Um, and their vanity is encouraged at a very young age. So if you're a kind of sweet, naive American who finds himself in Milan like I did, you're dealing with these people where all you're seeing is this, this perfection, that like a, like a sports car. Like their nails, their hair, their clothes, their tie, even the little things that are wrong are right in because a perfect way. Because they're... They're not contrived per se, but they're orchestrated. Well, well, they, they, you could call them contrived. There's this <laughs> thing called sprezzatura, which was this big menswear thing for a minute, which is, you know, making something a little off, like making the back of your tie a little longer than the front of your tie, and that was a very conscious decision to do that. Um, so, so I would go and. Uh, you know, the thing I did not like about Italy was it was all a little too perfect, a little too intimidating. And I always said the American gift is this kind of openness, this friendliness. Like, in general, we're going to greet you with a smile. We're going to, you know, everyone is equal. And, you know, I'm, I'm going back to, like, the best parts about America. Right. That we got to remind ourselves more and more of when we got We got them. We got them in there. They're in there somewhere. So they're in there. Yeah. And the the thing about America is it's a beautiful idea that's never fully been fully fleshed out yeah. and never truly been lived by everybody. But we're, you know, at least we're we're trying. We're you know, hopefully, we're going to be trying soon. Um, so, uh, you know, where am I going with this? No, I, it's just I like actually American think, menswear style is. Yeah. I think a big part of it is being open and friendly, and the mistakes are funny, and having that sense of humor and that acceptance of the mistakes and you know I would take I would be much happier hanging out with a guy who had no idea what he was doing with clothes as long as like we laughed a lot funny friendly um I just think those things are more important than than your clothes I I love I'm putting clothes down weirdly but I love (laughs) I love clothes it's my job but I I also think there's more important things than than getting dressed I think it's who you are you inform the clothes the clothes don't inform you right they they can help you they can help you in every single way even ones you don't think of if they make you feel more comfortable, more uh, handsome. You know, I always like to think, but the best thing I can do is make you feel like yourself only a little bit better. Yeah, well, that's Isn't what that you, a great idea. That's how you started. I want you to walk out the door with a little bit bigger spring in your step. Right. And you, have you ever walked? Hey, I look good today. Okay, you are a New Yorker. You will understand this. Do you ever remember a time when you walked out of your apartment, you took three steps, and you're like, I, this, this ain't working. I've got to go back. Something just is not working. Yeah. Yeah, it's usually when you step in that puddle. No, I like I, I but before so many times before I even made it to the front door, I'd be like, I gotta go rework this rig. It is not working, and I would go back and I would change something and I go back to work. Or even worse, you go to work. And then you realize at work, this is not working. Mine's a little different. Mine would be like, uh, you know, it, it's a weird psychological thing, but it'll be like, even though I didn't have to wear a tie at one job, uh-huh. I still did. I had no, I had no, there was no dress code at this place. Mm-hmm. I had no reason to wear a sport coat and tie every day, mm-hmm. but it was just sort of game day 
Mm-hmm. It was it was game on right now. So I'm, I mean, I'm wearing still. It's all thrift shop. It's all thrift store stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm still putting on the shirt and the tie and the blazer. And I'm like, you know, the second you cinch that tie up, not too hard because I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I want to keep it loose. But mm-hmm. you cinch that tie up, you're like, game on. I got a big day today. I'm walking out the door. I'm still wearing jeans and sneakers, mm-hmm. but I got the blazer on and I got the tie on, and I'm feeling good. It was never. I got to turn around and feel. I got to turn around to change it Mm -hmm. it was more like the second i put that tie on i'm like all right you were good to go i I got the day done you never you never second guessed it no well because i don't i'm colorblind apparently Uh, you know what look (laughs) no i'm not here's the thing about men in clothes yeah men can get very intimidated having these conversations and i like to say think of it like sports guys are always usually pretty comfortable talking about sports and you might be mildly interested in sports or you might be obsessed with sports and and think of it like listening to, say you love the Yankees. It's like watching the Yankees on TV or having a box seat to the Yankees. Yeah. You, you, everyone loves the Yankees, but some people love the Yankees a little more and are going to go that extra step and going to spend a little more money and have that experience. It's exactly the same thing with yeah. clothes. We all have to get dressed, but you might pick up a pair of Levi's at TJ Maxx or you might obsess about those Levi's or obsess about a pair of jeans and go to Japan to get the most crazy salvage, you know, denim that... Is is there's only ten made of, but it's, you it's can just, still have that conversation with the Levi's guy and the salvage denim guy. Can still have that conversation, like exactly. Yeah. And and now more than ever, guys are more comfortable having that conversation. Yeah, like fourteen year olds are obsessed with Supreme and shopping on eBay and the real real, and it, it's it's a whole new world. And I'm so happy that men's are men are men are just really more comfortable having these talks and and being open about it because there's nothing scary about it it's really just doesn't make you feel better about yourself you know what and i i equally love the guys who are like i don't give a a damn about any of this right not my jam great great let's talk about something else you know doesn't it's not all about clothes right so for for real it's not even close to all about clothes well that was a very democratic statement and <laughs> and i think that'll be a perfect way to cap off the evening which right. is uh tell everyone about it's gray label correct Michael Bastion Gray Label. Yeah. If you just Google it, um, you can you can find where it's available. Um, Nordstrom, Nordstrom.com, um, tons of places. It's re- it's really a, a lot of places. So, and what about uh, Instagram and Twitter? Where can people follow you? Uh, on Instagram, it's Michael Bastion. Uh, just straight up. Twitter is Michael Bastion. Um, you can't miss me. You're lucky that you got uh, you got your got your desired names from the onset. Right, and it took a. <laughs> It took a long time. I don't have my desired name with my own website. It's michaelbastionnyc.com. Oh, no. Because some lawyer in India scalped that thing. <laughs> yeah, yep. I know. Michaelbastion.com. And we're on Death Watch if he's listening because he's like <laughs> 89 years old. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Michael Bastion of Michael Bastion and Michael Bastion Gray Label. What an enjoyable conversation. I Same hope you guys here. go and buy some of his clothing or if not just have fun with clothing and go out there and be yourself and like he said open with a smile right so and go vote and and everyone go vote please everyone have a fantastic day good night good night hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.